Exodus chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day when they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, please pray with me. Father, thank you for Exodus 19. Exodus 19 is one of the most important chapters in all of the Scripture. And Lord, are we, as Christians living under the new covenant, we look back to see what the Old Covenant pointed to, it pointed to a you. It pointed to a greater grace, a greater deliverance than what Israel experienced here in Exodus. And so, Lord, I thank You for that. Thank You for Exodus 19 because it informs us of a greater grace that we have been given in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So Lord, I pray that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to obey. What you would have for us, again, a greater grace found in the mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys, go ahead and have a seat. Well, if you guys grew up with me in the Santini household, you would have known that my dad loved music. He loved music. He loved bands. He, he was actually on his way to Woodstock where he got turned around because Woodstock was crazy packed. So he was in that hippie movement. And so he had an epic collection of records, hundreds if not thousands of some of the greatest bands to ever play from the 60s, 70s, and the early 80s. Uh, singers like Janis Joplin, Joan Baez, uh, Santana, The Who, Clarence Clearwater Revival, Fleetwood Mac, etc. And uh, he would just be playing those records, you know, every single day we'd have a, a song playing in the house. And so I got to enjoy those guys. But the dude that he loved to play the most, just, I hated him. I couldn't listen to him because his voice was so, so bad. His voice was described as nasally, as graphy. What does graphy mean? Does anyone know what graphy means? I have no idea what graphy means. As croning, as scratchy. Some of the songs were like a rolling stone, knocking on heaven's door, hurricane and Mr. Tambourine Man. Who am I talking about? Bob Dylan, right? Man, couldn't stand that dude growing up, right, as a little guy. His voice was horrendous. But as I grew older and as I matured, I understood what a lyrical genius he was. His songs were incredibly, incredibly, one, relevant for that today, but just, it just broke down the culture and spoke truth into it. That's why many called him the modern-day Shakespeare of music, Bob Dylan. Well, one of those songs that stuck with me, obviously, throughout the years being in ministry is this hit in 1979 that says, you got to serve somebody, right? We know those songs. But let me, let me give you a, a verse out of that song and its chorus. He says this. He says, you may be a state trooper, you may be a young Turk. You may be head of some big TV network. You may be rich. You may be poor. You may be blind or lame. You may be living in another country under another name. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. This song is simple, yet it's profound in what it, what it speaks to. Because it speaks to a universal principle. And that universal principle is that everyone who has ever been born serves somebody or something. And this is how we get back into the book of Exodus. We see that Israel is confronted with this very question by the Lord Himself. Everyone serves somebody who are you going to serve? This question was asked of Israel thousands and thousands of years ago. But here's the thing. The Lord still asks that question today, this morning, and he asked it to you and to me. Everybody serves somebody. Who are you serving? Who are you giving your life to? And it was my prayer as I was praying for you and for me and this morning, I pray that you have experienced the grace of God of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. I pray that you experience the grace of God found in the gospel in your life so that you can proclaim with joy and with confidence this morning that as for me and my house, we and I will what? 
serve the Lord. You got to serve somebody. Who are you serving this morning? So let's dive in back into the book of Exodus. And first, we've been out of the book of Exodus for about eight weeks. Let me give us a quick recap of the first 18 chapters, 1 through 18. It covers about 80 years of Israel's history. It starts with Moses' birth. He's the one that God chose to call to deliver Israel out of Egypt. We see for the first 40 years of Moses' life, he is a prince of Egypt. He's learning under Pharaoh. He's considered one of Pharaoh's sons. Then he actually murders Amai. He escapes Egypt because he knows his life is on the line. He goes out into the wilderness, and there he gets trained up. He gets trained up for another 40 years to come back to be the guy, to be the leader, to help deliver God's people from Egypt. And that brings us to where we are in verse uh, chapter 19. He has finally led the people of Israel to Mount Sinai. Now, as I already mentioned, Exodus 19 is one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. In all the Bible. Because it introduces what's called the Mosaic Covenant. And really, it's so important for the central heartbeat of Exodus, but really for the rest of the Old Testament, because this is the covenant that Israel will be living under, the Old Covenant. And really, in Exodus 19, 4 through 6, is really the heartbeat of this portion of Scripture, the heartbeat of Exodus and the heartbeat of the Old Covenant. And so for the next several weeks, as we finish out uh, Exodus from Exodus 19 to Exodus 40, there are two things that God is trying to get through to His people. Two main foundations. The first, from Exodus 19 through 24, is that the Lord God is giving instruction on how to live a joy-filled life under the reign of God in the Old Covenant. And second, we're going to see in in chapters 25 through 40, uh, how to worship the Lord. What is acceptable worship to the Lord as we get instructions on how to build the tabernacle. So we're going to spend the next several months on learning how to live with God under the Old Covenant, and how to worship God in the Old Covenant. And it's going to be very important to us because as we're going to see throughout Exodus, as I already mentioned, we look back through the lens of the Gospel and the lens of the New new Covenant through Christ. And what we're going to see in Exodus 19 is all this stuff going on here points us to Jesus and the better covenant, the New Covenant of Christ. So that's where we're going, and it begins here in Exodus 19, and it begins as it always does, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, salvation deliverance always begins with the grace of God. The grace of God. So here's point number one. The grace of God redeems His people. And we see that in verses 1 through 6. The grace of God redeems His people. And real quickly, we're going to spend a lot of time on point one. We're going to rip through point two. And we're going to spend a little bit more time on point three. So you guys kind of get the flow of where we're going. But look at Exodus 19, verse 1. On the third new moon... After the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, after they had been delivered, so it's been about two months since they've been delivered from Egypt on their path, on their journey to this mountain. On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai, this desert. In verse 2, they set out from Rephidim. Rephidim was the last rest stop in Exodus 17, where we saw that uh, Moses knocked and got water out of there to, to supply uh, the water for Israel. And they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness, and Israel encamped before the mountain of God. And now look at verse 3. While Moses went up to God. Stop right there. Moses, as we know, was, was God's mediator between Israel and God. He was the one that was called that was to go in between and mediate between God and between Israel. And we're going to see Moses 
go up and down this mountain like three or four times. I mean, Moses must have been an incredible kind of mountain man or a hiker because he's constantly going up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Three to four times he's going up and down. He's getting the, the message from the Lord. He's going down. And he's giving it to the people. The people respond to the message of the Lord. He's taking about the, the message of how the people responded to the Lord. He's going up and down, up and down. He's the mediator, right? So the Lord called him to out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is the heartbeat right here, verses 4 through 6. The heartbeat of the Old Testament and of Exodus. Verse 4, first is a fulfillment of the promise of God that He made to Moses. On this very mountain, as you guys remember, in Exodus chapter 3, this is where Moses met with the Lord in His presence at the burning bush. This is where the Lord God called Moses and said, you are going to be my man. You're my man to lead Egypt out of Israel, out of bondage. And you're going to lead them to this mountain so that they will worship me. That's what, that's what the Lord promised Moses in Exodus 3.12. And the promise was met. The promise was kept. The Lord did exactly what he said to do. He used Moses to lead Egypt out of bondage. I'm sorry, to lead Israel out of bondage from Egypt to this mountain to worship God. I love verse 4 even more because it, it, it gives us a glimpse. It, it tells us about the grace of God. He says this. He says that you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You, has, you yourselves have seen and personally experienced my grace, my saving work, my deliverance, my redemption in you. I have redeemed you. And I want to quickly just, what, what have they seen? What have they experienced in chapters 1 through 18? Let me just rip through these real quick. First, as you guys recall, they were slaves to Egypt. They were in bondage. Egypt was, and the pharaohs were brutal taskmasters. So the, the people cried out to the Lord. The Lord remembered the covenant that he made with Abraham to be their God and my people. So he answers their prayer by sending Moses. He calls Moses out in Exodus chapter 3. He sends them to make his name known. That's one of the main reasons. There's two reasons why God sent Moses. One, to redeem the nation Israel from Egypt, number one. But number two, to make God's name known throughout the whole world, who he was. And he did that by humbling, humbling Pharaoh, the world's most powerful leader at the time. And then in Exodus 7 through 10, we see that God reveals himself uh, through destroying the Egyptians' religious system and gods with ten devastating plagues. He ripped through their religious system and knocked down all their false gods to show that he was the true and living God, the one true living God. But here's the thing. While he was wreaking havoc and all the Egyptians and all the people, all the Egyptians, the nation of Israel in the midst of those plagues was safe, was secure. Those plagues didn't hit them. God protected them to show that he was their God and they were his people. And then 11 through 13, the 10th plague, the angel of death. We hear, we see the God's, God's grace shine the brightest because through the blood of the Lamb, He saves all the firstborn children of the nation of Israel, whoever had the Lamb's blood planted on their doorposts. And then in Exodus 14 through 18, they were finally protected by, again, by the grace of God with the destruction of Pharaoh through his army through the Red Sea and then provided for in the desert. These things, these things is what Israel experienced. This is what they saw from their own eyes. God's redemption from Egypt. 
And I love the second thing they said. It says, not only were they redeemed from Egypt, but they were born by eagles' wings. This idea of born means to be lifted up, to be carried along. And the Holy Spirit in Scripture loves to use the illustration of eagles to talk about God's grace, God's power, and His saving work. And from generations on in the Old Testament, as, you, as we go to Isaiah chapter 40 and other places where the eagles are named, people will remember God's grace in Him redeeming them from Egypt. He, he bore them out. He carried them out from bondage on eagles' wings. At the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy 32, He says this, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them up on pinions. Again, the Holy Spirit loves to use the illustration of eagles to show God's grace and God's power. And I don't know about you, but immediately I thought of J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, series of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. There is no doubt in my mind that this is where Tolkien got the great eagles of that story from. The, the eagles are all over the Hobbit. The eagles are all over the Lord of the Rings where, where Frodo and Bilbo and the, all the crews, Gandalf, they're all in trouble in the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. And it seems like there's nothing they can do until the eagles come. There's that great scene at the end of the battle where it says, the eagles are coming, one says. The one I picture is when Gandalf is on the Tower of Isengard. He's in prison by himself, right? You guys remember that. He's all alone. And all of a sudden he sees that little moth fluttering around. He knows the eagles are coming and he jumps off the tower. And what happens? The giant eagles come in and swoop and carry him off. Right? When Frodo and Sam Ganji, after they throw the ring in the Mount Doom and there's lava and destruction and everything is going down, they're laying on that rock and you're thinking like, oh my goodness, the lava is just going to come and overtake them and they're going to die. All of a sudden the great eagles come in and pick them up and carry them off and deliver them. They are born by eagles' wings. And third, look where, look where the eagles carry them. The eagles carry them where? Circle it. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you where? To myself. To myself. God brings the nation of Israel like an eagle. He brings them, He saves them, and He delivers them to Himself. You see, the people of Israel experienced God's grace in their life was more than just an address change, right? It was more getting them from Egypt to the promised land. It was more than a, a change of scenery. God was delivering them to bring them to Himself. You see, this is, again points us that not only were we saved from something, they were saved from Egypt, from Pharaoh, but they're saved to someone. They're saved to God the Father. In this little portion of Scripture, we see three times it says that God came down, God came down, and God came down in verse 9, 11, and 20. And what we see here is God's grace always begins with Him. It always begins with God coming down to save humanity. So this is an incredible story of redemption. We walked through it. It took us several months to look at how God redeemed, delivered Israel out of Egypt. It's an incredible story. We were wowed by many things. But here's the thing. If you are a Christian, you have seen, you have experienced a greater grace of God. You have seen, you have experienced yourself personally of a greater exodus than Israel did. You see, they were, they were, they were, they were saved from, from physical slavery and bondage from a ruthless ruler, a ruthless dictator. But you and I have been saved, set free. We've been redeemed and delivered from mankind's most ruthless enemy, ruthless ruler, that of sin.
And even to make it more personal, you have been redeemed from the worst, most ruthless, vile king, ruler in your life, your own sin. We've been redeemed by the one mediator, the man Christ Jesus, and his life, death, and resurrection. It's a greater redemption because this sin, sin will not only destroy us physically, but it will also destroy us spiritually. It's the thing that separates us from the grace and the love of God for all eternity, and it puts us into hell if we're not in Christ. But if you're a Christian, if you have repented of your sin, if you have looked to Jesus for your salvation, His life, His death, and His resurrection, you experience a greater redemption than Israel. You experience a greater redemption than walking through the walls of water in the Red Sea. You've experienced a greater redemption in Christ because you have been saved, redeemed from your own sin. You see, you and I have been redeemed from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin. You you and I no longer live under law but we live under grace. You and I no longer are seen as sinners. God doesn't look to you and say, there's a sinner. I don't want to have anything to do. He now, under the blood of Christ, He looks at you and He says, see, a saint. That's your identity. That's your position. He calls you a treasured possession. You are God's treasured possession if you are in Christ. This is talking about justification. This is purely grace. This is purely His doing that we're saved by the penalty of sin. Nothing that we can do. Secondly, we've been redeemed from the power of sin. Sin no longer rules us as a slave master. He has given us a new heart. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us His Word that we can now see and be led and guided and directed by Him. This is talking about sanctification. And one day, sooner or later, we will redeem from the presence of sin when we are in the presence of God the Father. This is talking about glorification. If you are a Christian, you and I have experienced a greater measure of God's grace in our lives, a greater exodus and a greater redemption. And so that's why I want to pause. Have you experienced that grace? Have you experienced that redemption found in Jesus Christ? Again, it's something that you can't earn. It's something that you can't do. It's something that you gain by believing in what Christ has done for you. By repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as your Lord and Savior. So we see first the grace of God here. First saves the nation Israel. And now because of that, look at verse 5. Now, therefore, now here's where the Mosaic covenant comes in because the Lord says, what I've done for you, I've saved you, I've redeemed you, I've delivered you from Egypt. Now, obey me. Now, keep my covenant. And again, this is so important, the in order of this. Notice it doesn't say, it does not say, obey my voice and keep my covenant. You must first clean up your life before I'll show you grace and then redeem you and bring you to myself. It's not sanctification before justification. No, it's I have given you my grace. I have delivered you. You have experienced and seen it. Not of what you can do, but what I have done, I have redeemed you. Therefore, now, because of my grace, follow me. Obey me. It's justification leads to sanctification. One said it this way. Deliverance leads to discipleship. And this is why we have experienced a greater grace. Remember in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses was first called by God the Father, there were no commands to obey. There were no commands. It was just God saying, Moses, you're my guy. I'm going to send you back to Egypt, and this is what's going to happen. I'm going to do this, 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 lead you guys out of Egypt. That's what's going to happen. And now when you get to Exodus 19, now all of a sudden, the covenant comes into place to now obey. 
So because I saved you, now obey. The pattern that's being established here that points to it in the new covenant is that redemption, justification, is always first by the grace of God. It's His doing. Leads to sanctification. That's our growing in holiness and obedience. Leads to glorification one day where we will be in heaven without forever. This is why this is such an important passage in the Old Testament because it points to a greater and the greatest deliverance that you and I have experienced, the deliverance of Christ. Therefore, the Lord says, if you say yes and obey and walk in these covenants, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. Look again at verse 5 in Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if indeed you obey my voice and keep my covenant, there's three things that are going to happen. You're going to be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. You're going to be a kingdom of priests, and you're going to be a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The reason why, one of this, to us this morning, why this is so important, because again, it points us to the new covenant, is where we get a better picture of this, but this is part of where we get, the crossing gets our mission from right here. See if you notice anything. First, you're going to be my treasured possession. That's talking about a vertical relationship with God the Father. The personal relationship that He has with His people individually. This is talking about the love of God with His people. Secondly, He says you're going to be a kingdom of priests. This is live. This is how we live in gospel community. Because a kingdom of priests there would be ones that would minister to one another. And show another way how to, to minister and love and pray and encourage and worship the Lord. And then finally, leave a legacy, a holy nation. The holy nation here is that you would be, Israel is to be set apart from all the nations around them that live basically the same thing in this polytheistic worldview. They were going to live in this monotheistic worship, the one true living God. God was going to pour out His blessings as they obeyed Him, and they were going to be blessed. And all the other surrounding nations would see like, man, there's something going on there in Israel. I want to be a part of that. They would see that they're a holy nation and that would cause these surrounding nations to see that they were following after false gods, repent and come to the one true God. It's an incredible thing. And just like Moses was Israel's mediator between them and God, Israel would be called to be the nation's mediator to show the world the love of God, the grace of God found in the one true God. And again, this points us to a greater picture. Again, all this is talking about what it talks about in Luke 24 where it says, all the words beginning with Moses and the prophets and Psalm point to Jesus, testify about me. You're seeing these massive connections. The points us to this we went through 1 Peter. Rich quoted one of the verses today, 1 Peter 2.9. But we see the pattern here, the greater pattern for the new covenant as we are Christians. First it begins with justification. First it begins with God coming down and blessing us with His grace. 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Because God has set His graceful, His, His gospel love on us, it then leads us to 1 Peter 2, 9, to be, and this is our identity now, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. And what are we to do? We are to proclaim the excellencies of Him. We are to proclaim the gospel to one another, to those outside of the church. We are to proclaim the gospel to them that they saved us that delivered us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Exodus 19 is important for us because it shows us the greater grace that we have been given. It shows us of the greater redemption that we have experienced even more than Israel. It's an incredible truth. So first, we see the grace of God that redeems His people. Secondly, and we'll rip through this one, the grace of God prepares His people. Verses 7 through 15. Here we go. Moses goes down the mountain. 
up and down, up and down, up and down. Moses goes down the mountain and gives the message to the people. And the people agree to the commandments of the Lord. Look at verse 8. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, they say. Now, they don't know exactly what that means. They just experience all of His grace and all of His love and all of His mercy and His deliverance. And they're going to be like, hey, man, whatever you say, Lord, I'm going to follow you, which is right. And we're going to spend the next several weeks, again, from Exodus 20 to 24, it's going to give you the stipulations of this covenant on what it means and what they are going to follow, beginning with the Ten Commandments next week. So Moses goes back down and reports what they must do. They must consecrate themselves. Why? Because the Holy One of Israel is coming down. They're about to meet with God Himself, His presence. And He is utterly separate. He is utterly holy. He is utterly righteous. And He is coming down the mountain. And you just don't go hang out with God the Father as your homeboy. You've got to consecrate yourself. You've got to prepare yourself to meet with the Holy One of Israel. And so in verses 12 on, he gives four requirements. And these are good. These are loving. Again, this is the grace of God to the people of Israel. Why? Because if they don't follow these things, what would happen? They will die. They will die. And so this is, this is, this is good. This is God's grace. He's giving them, hey, this is how, this is how you're going to approach me as I come down the mountain. First, we see in verse 10, wash your clothes. Wash your clothes. Now, you're thinking like, well, why, you know, wash your clothes. Why would that be such a big deal? Because in the Old Testament, this is kind of an outward expression of an inward reality. It's, a, it's, it's that the Old Testament <clears throat> clothes represented an inward spiritual purification when they were washed. So that's the first thing. Second thing, verses 12 to 13, no, no nature walks. You, you just, you, no one's taking hikes up the mountain of God while God's presence on this mountain because it's holy. So no one's just going to be taking nature walks up this mountain. And not even taking nature walks, but don't even touch the base of the mountain. And not even your animals can touch it because this mountain is so holy with the presence of God that anything that contaminates it and touches it will die. For me personally, if I was writing this, the Holy Spirit, I would probably say no animals except maybe house cats, right? I'd probably say, yeah, maybe throw the house cats in there, all right? Sorry if you're a cat lover, all right? Not a cat lover, all right? There you go. But again, what we have here is God just, he's, he's putting a boundary. It's like he's taking yellow police tape and, and wrapping it around this mountain. Say, do not go um, near this mountain because you will die. Things have to come in order for me to come down. So he's telling Moses to put boundaries around this mountain. Verse 15 is the third reason. And do not go near a woman. What does that mean? Well, this is directed towards men. And in particular, this is directed towards married men. In other words, it's saying no sexual relationship with your wives during these two days. Because God wants these men, He wants all the nation, but these men in particular, the men of Israel that are married, to be singularly focused, to be devoted on getting themselves ready to meet with a holy God. He's not saying that, that you know, sex is bad between a husband and wife. No, it's not bad. We've walked through a whole book of the Bible called the Song of Solomon. It's a good gift of God. It's, it's to be celebrated. But here, when God's about to visit, you want to make sure that you are consecrated to Him. And one of those ways is you want to be singularly focused and not be distracted. So that's what he's talking about here. Paul gives a similar command in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he says, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps of agreement for a limited time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer. So you may be singularly focused on prayer, but then come together soon so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. See, so that's what it means. It means the Lord wants the men to be singularly focused on, on what's about to take place, that the Holy One of Israel is going to visit them on the third day and they want to be pure. And then four, wait for the trumpet blast. 
Wait for the trumpet blast. Because when the trumpet blasts, that means I'm coming down the mountain and you to come with me. So these are the, the specific ritual consecrations that the people of God are to go through to meet with the Holy One of Israel. Now for us, it's, it's living in the New Covenant, it's kind of for us to, how do, we, how do we wrap our minds around this? Because we don't have these like four steps to meet with God, right? You've been around the crossing or, or, or you in the New Testament, you hear this thing, as you come to the Lord as you are. You don't have to go through some ritual cleaning process to come to the Lord. And know in the New Testament, in Hebrews 12, it says that, that if you're in Christ because of the grace of God, we come with boldness and we come with confidence. So we say yes and amen. We, we come as we are to the Lord because of what Christ has done. And yet we still come, though, with a, with a reverence and with, a, with a, a, a fear. We don't come flippantly. We don't come with a laissez-faire attitude. We come with a holy fear because we still recognize even when saved by the grace of God that the Lord is still holy, holy, holy. As I was meditating on this portion of Scripture, a song came on by Third Day called A Consuming Fire. And it says, yes, our God, He is a consuming fire. Then I was immediately thought of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe when Beaver said that the Lord is good, but He's not safe. Right? There's this tension between that God is a gracious and good Father, but He's also a holy and righteous judge. R.C. Sproul, I think, does a great job in these contrasts in his book, The Holiness of God. If you haven't read it, that's a book you want to read, The Holiness of God. R.C. Sproul says this, God's grace is not infinite. God is infinite. And God is gracious. We experience the grace of an infinite God, but grace is not infinite. God sets His, presence, uh, sets his patience and forbearance to a limit. He warns us over and over again that someday the axe will fall and His judgment will be poured out. And there we see the contrast of, again, God being a holy, righteous judge and Him being a gracious Father. And this is the tension that we hold. And that's what we see in, uh, in the second point, that the grace of God prepares His people in the Old Covenant. And that leads us to the third point. The grace, I'm sorry, the God of grace comes down the mountain. The God of grace comes down the mountain, verses 16 through 25. We see in, in, in verses 16 and 17, we see this incredible, incredible event, scene, experience. And it is frightening. It is frightening. It is terrifying. God comes down the mountain. He just doesn't come down the mountain. He comes down the mountain with fire, smoke, thunder, lightning, Everything is shaking. And then the Lord speaks. It's an incredible scene. The third day has come. They prepared themselves the first two days and the Lord comes down in this incredible scene. And this is a, a frightening scene. This would shake you to the core if you and I were there. And so I kind of thought, I was like, man, how, how, can, I, can, I, can I come up with something? What would be the best illustration of maybe how we can put ourselves there and maybe experience this a little bit? And I got, I, got, I got half of it. Because I think this summer kind of prepared us a little bit and gave us a little bit of an experience of this very thing in the sense of seeing the mountains on fire, smoke, right? Obviously, there's no trumpet blast, there's no Lord speaking from thunder, and the earth isn't trembling. But I, just want, to, I want you to step back and take yourself back to the summer. I put three pictures on here. Maybe, maybe it looked something along like this, or maybe the next picture. Maybe it looked like something like this again. And this, the third one is the one I liked. 
Maybe it looks like that. We see the smoke. We see the, the fire. We know the intensity going on there. When, I, when, when this was happening, we'd step back and I would look at it. I would say like, wow, this is awesome. At the same time, i say, this is awful. You had those com- two competing emotions happening. Could you imagine being there, then all of a sudden the whole earth shaking? God's voice coming down. Oh, what a scene this would have been. If we look at verses 16 and 17, we see a word that kind of jumps out when the presence of the Holy One comes down. Verse 16, so all the people in the camp, what? Trembled. Verse 17, and the whole mountain trembled. So everyone that was at this, everything that was at this felt this terrifying feeling and they trembled at the presence of God. So this is the old covenant, but what about the new covenant? How do we look at it? Again, we're looking through this through the lens of Christ. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. This is so awesome. Hebrews chapter 12. Because the author of Hebrews contrasts this scene, this mountain, with another mountain. Another mountain. Hebrews chapter 12. But here's the thing. Not only do we see the people's response, we see the mountain's response. Hebrews chapter 12 gives us Moses' response to this event. And again, remember, Moses is God's man. He's the one mediating between them. He's, he's been in the presence of the Lord. He's had these conversations with the Lord. And Hebrews 12, 21 says this, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight at Mount Sinai that Moses says, I trembled with fear. So even Moses was freaking out because of the presence of the Lord. God's holiness coming down the mountain. This was a scene at Mount Sinai. Again, everything and everyone was trembling. And if you and I were there, we would have been trembling too. But here's the good news. We weren't there. We live in the year 2021. And we don't, here's the good news. We don't, as Christians, have to go to Mount Sinai. We get to go to a different mountain. We go to Mount Zion. In Hebrews 12, 18, it says this, but you have not come. And it gives a description of Mount Sinai. You and I, as Christians, don't go to Mount Mount Sinai. But now look at verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 12. But you and I come to Mount Zion. Think about what we just talked about in Exodus 19. And even the the beginning verses of uh, 18 through 22. It describes this terrifying scene at Mount Zion. But you and I have not come to that mountain. We come to Mount Zion. Contrast this picture to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and innumerable angels in festive gatherings. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Those are Christians whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life because they repent of their sins and trusted in Christ. And to God, the judge, he still judged, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is talking about those who are at Sinai, those who believe in the coming Messiah. They are now in heaven, in righteousness. On this mountain, Mount Zion, and what kind of a mountain is it? There's a party going on in Mount Zion. This is a joyful party in the presence of the Lord. There aren't any boundaries that are set up. There aren't any rituals that they have to do to cleanse themselves. They get to come freely into the presence of God. And verse 24 tells us why. Verse 24 is the reason why there is such a difference between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to sprinkle blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. 
The reason why we don't go to Mount Sinai is because we have a greater mediator than Moses, the man Christ Jesus. Therefore, he takes us to Mount Zion. We get there through Jesus. Moses was good, but Jesus is better. So our experience of the presence of God and the holiness of God is much different than what Israel had at Mount Sinai. We get to walk in the presence of God with joy and not terrified or trembled in fear, but with confidence and boldness again because of the grace of God shown in the life of Christ. On Mount Zion, there's a heavenly party on this mountain and we get to be a part of it. We're not the base of the mountain again, cowering in fear and being terrified. We're up the mountain, in the mountain, in the heavenly Jerusalem, hanging out with God the Father and Jesus and all the angels in their garb, singing and worshiping with Him. This is the scene. This is the mountain that you and I get to hike up. This is the mountain. Again, and notice, it's all because of Jesus. Your name, my name, is written in the Lamb's book of life. The firstborn who are rolled in heaven because of Christ's blood that proclaims or speaks a better word than Abel's blood. You see, when Abel died at the hands of Cain, his blood cried out for vengeance. Christ's blood brings redemption and forgiveness. It's a greater grace. And I just want to pause and think about that. Your name, if you're paying and trusting Christ right now, has been written by God Himself in the Lamb's book of life. And you are secure forever. You have an invitation to Mount Zion and the party of heaven in the presence of the Lord. And you get to worship with the angels and other brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh man, what a scene that is. What a mountain that is. And here's the thing, real quick, ladies of the crossing, you guys are about to go through the book of Hebrews. You guys are about to unpack some of this stuff. There's so much more here that we can unpack and what a blessing and glorious time it's going to be because of the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. The question for us this morning is, so how do we respond? How do we respond? Well, first we respond with thankful hearts that we don't have to go to Mount Zion, right? Anyone with, I mean, uh, Mount, Mount Sinai. Anyone with me on that one? Are you glad you don't got to go to Mount Zion? And, fe and feel that tremble and that fear, the holiness of God? But we get to go to Mount, Mount Zion. How do we respond? Look at Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, because we get to go to Mount Zion and, 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 and be in the presence of the Lord without any boundaries because of Jesus. Let us be grateful. Let us be grateful. Be grateful this morning that God has shown you His grace through the great mediator Jesus Christ. Be grateful that you have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that cannot be taken away from you. doesn't matter what's happening in this world. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be taken away. And then let us offer ourselves acceptable worship. Acceptable worship. And notice the heart issue, heart issue with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. What an incredible, what an incredible scene Hebrews chapter 12 points us with Mount Zion. Compare that with Mount Sinai. But we study Exodus 19 because again what Luke says Begin with Moses and the prophets. Everything I've written points us to Jesus. This scene right here points us to a greater grace that we get to experience if we have been in Christ Jesus. Just as we began this message, you're going to have to serve somebody. My prayer for you is that I hope to see you all 
at the party on Mount Zion with God the Father, with Jesus Christ, and the rest of His saints. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Exodus 19. We truly see why this is such an incredible portion of Scripture and how central it is in the Old Covenant, but how important it is because it points us to the New Covenant. How Moses was a great mediator, but Moses' life points us to a greater mediator, the man Christ Jesus. The incredible event that happened at Mount Sinai points us to a greater event that happens at Mount Zion. Lord, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your love. Thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for Your holiness, justice, and righteousness as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.